Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go again, you guys. Welcome back to the Two Tongues Podcast. Uh, Chris coming at you again with another solo episode. Um, I don't know if this is going to be a three-part series or a four-part series, but this is part three of my Hegel series, um, getting into a book that he wrote called The Phenomenology of Spirit, which I always wanted to read and was intimidated by, and uh, kind of using the podcast as an opportunity to force myself to do it. Um, and I'm getting into it now. So for you guys who have followed me this far, um, we've really only covered a short bit of the book. Uh, the last time we uh, got together on this subject, <clears throat> I was talking as much about Ian McGilchrist as I was Hegel. Um, so today we're going to focus focus a bit on Hegel. There was basically two questions that I wanted Hegel to answer um, for this episode. The first one was, you know, when Hegel's talking about self-consciousness and what that's like for us, you know, it's like being, it's sort of like being two people at once. Um, I've said said this on the last episodes, but just to recap, it's like having an awareness of yourself um, and, well, having an awareness of yourself as subject and as object. So what it's like to be a human being, you know, we look at ourselves as the person that's looking out through our eyes, that's the observer, but we also look at ourselves like an object, like we would look at a third person, you know, as as something else. And we examine ourselves, we're critical of ourselves, we understand ourselves. And very much the same way as we understand and experience everything else. And the weird thing about that is, is everything else isn't ourself, you know. But we come to understand ourselves in exactly the same way we come to understand other things. Even though we exist inside of ourselves, it's a weird thing being self-conscious. And if nobody ever put it to you that way, you may never have realized how freaking weird it is. And there are a lot of things like that. There are a lot of things like that. So the questions were, in, in the context of self-consciousness, is how do, you get, how do you get many from one? Right. So if self-consciousness is one thing, how do you get two consciousnesses out of it? How do you get this experience of multiplicity that other things exist beyond just the one? You know, whether that be um, thinking about yourself as object and as subject, whether that that's observing the existence of other people that exist as well. Um, how do you get more than one consciousness from one? And there's a, broad, a larger question there because it's an ontological question because Hegel talks about this very much in a mystic way, like I talk about it, that self-consciousness is something like is something like the creation of the universe. Being self-conscious is something like the creation of the universe. And so when you try to understand how do you get one, <clears throat> how do you get many from one, you you also from a mystic perspective know if you're starting from one, you know, consciousness is the only thing that exists. How do you get the world from it? How do you get the material cosmos and all the different things that exist? How do you get all of that difference and, and, and you know, um, how do you get it from one substance? How do you get it from the same thing? Difference from sameness. How do you get that? That's something that McGilchrist said before. You know, it's <laughs> such a strange thing to say. How do you get difference from sameness, you know? The other question is, how do you turn consciousness into reality? Because this is what Hegel argues, and this is what mystics argue, and it's what I argue. It's what the panpsychists argue as well. How do you get consciousness, how do you, how do you start with consciousness and get reality from it? And by reality, I mean, you know, material existence, you know, matter, energy, all the things you can touch and feel with your hands, all the stuff in the cosmos that, that works, you know, with and against each other, that spin the planets and the, the stars and all that. How do you get that from consciousness? 
So maybe these are the same question, but that's the one I want to try to answer for you. The other thing I wanted to do, and uh, I kind of had a little argument with myself while I was doing this. Um, if you got, For anybody who's listened from the very beginning, who, who has a good memory, you might remember that I mentioned Hegel once before early on. And one of the things I said about his philosophy is that I, I love it. But that Hegel gets a bad rap because uh, he got his ideas got connected with some of the some of the stuff from the turn of the century. Um, his ideas get looped in with some Nazi ideas, some communist ideas, and they're still around today. Hegel's still part of the philosophical bed, bedrock of um, of communism. So that's all stuff I disagree with violently. You know, I don't I don't want to go with that at all, and I. I thought I would keep that from you. Like, I just wouldn't talk about that stuff. But when I was reading it in context, I was like, I, I really, I'm not doing justice to it if I don't bring it up a little bit. So there's one spot in this where I'm going to talk about some stuff I disagree with. Um, it's philosophical. It's entirely philosophical stuff from Hegel. But in application, I think is is wrong. So as much as I like Hegel, uh, I'm going to disagree with him on something and I won't I won't put the cart before the horse, but I'll show you when we get there. All right, so I want to start with the first quote. It goes something like this. Hegel says, "Consciousness divides itself into parts. Consciousness of existence and bare being." He says it becomes a thing with many properties. Okay, so so the question is, how do, you, how do you get many from one? And Hegel's trying to answer that question by saying, consciousness divides itself into parts. So that's how you're going to get many out of one. Now, he's not explaining how this happens. You know, like, how does consciousness divide? What does that mean? You know, the, 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 that's not clearly answered, and it won't be, you know, spoiler, uh, spoiler alert, it won't be when we get to the end either. Um, but it's all, but it's consistent with lots of other interesting things that corroborate this idea. A lot of them are religious, philosophical, mythological type stuff, but but also physical stuff. Also, you know the uh, the way you know how do you get two cells out of one? They divide, right? That you can see patterns like that in nature. That things do divide into parts, and that. You can see that in all sorts of ways. The illustration of a cell, cell division is a fundamental one for biology, but there's all sorts of other things like that. Um, so consciousness divides itself into parts, and he's saying that one of those parts, the part that we call being, that it becomes a thing with many properties. So, so what's being implied here is that this division, and this is something that, that Ian McGilchrist talked about and I brought up in the last Hegel episode, He's talking about the coincidence of opposites. So you can imagine you have one thing. Um, like, oh boy, I mean, coming up with an example on the spot is always difficult, but because the, the examples are never perfect. Um, but think about something like light and darkness, opposites, light and dark. Imagine those things together. And you have to imagine that when they're together, they haven't gone away. Because this is the biggest, this is the biggest obstacle for m modern Western scientifically minded people. When you think about opposites together, a lot of times people just imagine that there's nothing left. Like I, I they used the example in the last episode. If you have a negative five and a positive five, they're they're opposites on the number line. You put them together, you get nothing. And so people li like to think that you have a negative charge and a positive charge. You put them together and they dis they disappear. You got no charge anymore. This is not true. This is not happening. This is an illusion. So you, you have to understand that you're fooling yourself when you think that. So here's the idea. You have light and dark together. Now that's something. It's not nothing. It's something. When you divide it. When you divide the opposites, you take whatever you had that used to be a whole, and you divide it in half. Now you have light and darkness. So now you have something, right? And we would all agree, light and darkness seem like things. But you put them together, and we, we always seem to assume that you've got nothing there. That you've, you're back to, to zero. You're back to, to nothing. And that's simply not the case. What you have is everything. When, when opposites are together, you have what Jordan Peterson calls the Ouroboros. You have everything you have the potential for anything to become. You have everything all at once. You divide that up, and now you have two distinct things. You have opposites. 
and they're on a they're on a spectrum. They're on they're on a um, a spectrum that's connected, right? Like a like a cycle, like a circle. You can imagine. Um, light and darkness are on that sort of a spectrum. Light becomes dark, dark becomes light. They're not separate things. They're one thing. But you don't. But it's difficult to imagine how you have anything until you separate them. So this is the idea that consciousness divides itself into parts, into opposites. Now it's not clear what that act is, and it's very metaphysical. You know, I don't know what that act is that separates consciousness, or what that even means. So we're just using this as like a framework to try to make sense of this. I, I don't know what it means, but follow me, because it's, it's going to make some sense. So when consciousness separates itself into opposites, that those opposites also separate themselves into opposites. And then those opposites separate themselves into opposites. And what you end up with is this multiplicity. You, en you end up with this explosion of differences that creates all sorts of unrelated things, seemingly from one thing, and it's all done by separating out, splitting in half, separating out, that kind of thing. And that creates multiplicity. It creates the plurality of the world. All right, so let's go to the next quote. He says, The unnecessary plurality of properties concentrates itself into the form of an essential opposition between individual and universal. So I'll stop there for a second. So he says, the unnecessary plurality of properties. So I want to just point out, when he says the plurality is unnecessary, he kind of means that they're not exactly real. So this goes back to the example I just brought up. If you have opposites together, when they're together, when, they're, when everything is together, opposites united, what you have is potentiality, the thing that I call God. Okay? So you're starting out with God. When, when that separates and becomes many things. It becomes the material cosmos. It becomes our experience, let's say. When that happens, all of the differences that, that we notice in the world, the difference between you and me, let's say, the difference between the sky and the earth, the difference between whatever, everything, that all of those things that seem to, to be individual, unique things really aren't. The truth is everything rolled back up into one. That's the truth. That's objective reality. That's God, or the Terminator 2 substance that I refer to so much in metaphor, the T-1000 liquid metal could become anything material. That's what God is. So the plurality of properties that you, that you and I see when we open up our eyes and look at everything that exists, that's not necessary. It's kind of like an illusion. The truth is everything's one. That's the truth. That's what the mystic intuition's saying. And in fact, this is what Hegel's going to say. So that's, that's the bit about un, the unnecessary, uh, trying to explain what he means by the unnecessary plurality of, of properties. And he says that this initial split, um, this initial uh, opposites that are formed when consciousness separates, is the individual and the universal. And these are just a way for us to talk about the most abstract sort of opposites. You could say being and non-being. That's something I love to talk about because that word non-being is a great example of what I was just trying to, to describe. Uh, it comes up, you know, in, in, in this type of philosophy. Um, like there is an opposite to being. Being is this material reality. It's our experience. That's what being is. It's everything. But, but that's only half the picture. The other half is non-being. And most people, most scientifically minded people are rolling their eyes right now. What kind of woo do you mean, Chris? You're saying you look around, you see being. Being seems to be all that exists. And you're telling me that's only half the picture? You're telling me there's this other thing called non-being? What is that? Well, we don't know. It's impossible to have an experience of that. It's the unknown part of ourself. It's what Carl Jung called the unconscious. You know? It's the part of ourself that is God, in my opinion. So, so that's, that's what we're talking about here when, we, when we're talking about the individual you and I, and being, and the universal, that's non-being, that's God, that's the other part of ourselves that we, don't, that we don't have access to. So then I'm going to read the rest of this quote. He says, and still more for the later, so he's talking, uh, latter, he's talking about the universal, which is consciousness, purified. So the universal, he's saying this is just pure consciousness, whatever that means. It's, it's, it's not differentiated, it's not become anything, it's just potential. He says, the plurality assumes a twofold form, that of uh, the law of individuality and the law of universality. 
Then he says, each of these remains, however, spirit in its entirety. So this is important. He's saying that when consciousness divides into the individual and the universal, that both of them are still one thing. He calls spirit, but, you know, that we've said before, that just means consciousness. You know, you might think consciousness with a capital C, like we're talking about, I've heard people use the phrase source consciousness, but we're talking about God, basically. He's saying that they're the same thing, the individual and the universal, however, are the same thing, he says. In, he, they represent each other in their entirety. And that's interesting because, because God or the universal, that, that's something that we understand to be infinite and eternal. And all of material reality, we, we tend to assume is not that way. Everything is finite. Everything is limited. And what Hegel's saying is that's, that's also illusion. That's that you f- you're fooling yourself. That the individual is the universal. And the universal is the individual. And you have the entirety of one in the other, and the entirety of the other in the one. So what does that mean? I mean, it means all kinds of amazing things. If you think it through, it means that within the individual human being, within the individual human being consciousness, is the entirety of God. It also means within the individual atom is the entirety of God. And, you know, there's some, there's some real vivid imagery there, you know, like splitting an atom and releasing the power that's there. I mean, we all know what happens when you do that. Okay. All right. Uh, all right, so there's a bit here in the, in the book where Hegel starts to illustrate the relationship of self-consciousness. And in describing this imminence that he talks about, if you remember what I, how I described it, it's in itself. That's what imminence means. So to Hegel's mind, a self-conscious creature is existing within itself. So you can imagine, you can imagine God creates the world for it to inhabit. God creates the, the, the world, the plane of existence that it can exist in. Okay, that's what that's, that's just like in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and then creates mankind. That's what, that's what we're talking about here. God creating the place in which it can exist. That's, that's what, how Hegel views self-consciousness, that we're consciousness existing within consciousness. We're a being existing within being, that sort of a thing, a pattern within a pattern. That's that fractal image that I, that I continue to bring up. This is this imminence idea of in itselfness, as he, as he calls it. So he starts giving examples of this. He starts talking about making an analogy to a community or a family. So if you're trying to understand how you can exist in yourself somehow, he's like, imagine you're a member of a community, right? Now imagine that the community is the, is the organism. Not, not you as an individual, but the community. And you're a member of the community. And so that's how you exist within yourself. That makes sense. And he uses the same example with a family. He's like, imagine the family is the, is the macro being. The family is the thing that exists. And every member of the family, you know, every individual, every, every consciousness as an individual is any one member of the family. But consciousness with a capital C, that's the universal. That's the family unit as a whole. So you can be existing within the family. Something like that. So this is how he tries to, he tries to explain it. He tries to use this, this analogy. It's like <clears throat> he's describing how our identity, how our particularity exists within the family. But that the family, the family is the substance or the, the greater, higher, true level of existence. So you can understand being in itself as being a member of the whole. A member of the whole. But then Hegel takes a dark turn by abstracting a level up. And this is, where I, this is where I disagree with Hegel, and I'll tell you why. And this is where I think you're going to start to see some, some stuff that's questionable from like a political perspective. So let me, let, me, let me start here. He says, For in government, the entire community is an individual whole. Government is concrete, actual spirit reflected into itself. 
yikes. So his choice of using government here is is going to be a part of what I disagree with. He says for government, the entire community is an individual whole. So the community becomes the the greater, truer form of existence. And he says, so it's the government that is that is consciousness reflected into itself. So he's there's a way in which there's a way in which he's not wrong. You know, people make up the government, and the will of the people is representative of the community. And so what the government says and does is, in, in, in theory, supposed to be representative of the will of the people. But we all know that's bullshit. We all know that doesn't actually happen. Um, he, go, he goes on here. He says, this simple force, and he's talking about government, allows the community to unfold and expand into its component members and to give each part subsistence and self-existence of its own. Okay, so the government, he says, is responsible for the community unfolding into individuality, for its members to exist as individual creatures on their own. And I find that to be very, very strange. It's like, I, I agree that the relationship between individuals and their larger social group it's something like a fractal reflection of that eminence dynamic that Hegel sees at the bedrock of reality. I, I disagree with his focus on government. So my question is, don't you have the same dynamic within the community already, with or without government? You, you know, we don't even have to consider how the, how the community is being governed. Let's just look at the community. So why give credit to the government? You know, it's the community that is the place where people can develop into individuals. We see that all the time. You see that with your kids, if you as you watch them grow up, or the, you know, the, like the school kids, you know, get, getting along and socializing and learning how to exist. You see that happen in the community, not in the government. So this is what this is what I want to take issue with. Why credit? Why credit that to the government? Shouldn't it be better attributed to civil society or even human beings' natural tendency to exist cooperatively? It has nothing to do with government. We would exist cooperatively whether we had a government or not, or under any form of government. So we exist as a community. We exist for one another in a lot of ways, right? You know, you have to you have to buy a pair of shoes. You go to the store, you buy a pair of shoes. You know, you have to you have to. You're hungry. You go to the restaurant. You know, somebody else is going to cook you dinner. You know, we all. But you know, if somebody needs something from me, and they're going to come to me for my profession, I'm going to do that thing for them. And we all pay each other for for the for the you know for the uh, for the service. But we're all living in a society. We're living for each other in all sorts of different ways. That's just what it's like to be a human being. It's also stepping on mystic territory. To exist for one another is just a hair away from recognizing your identity with one another. That you're not different, you know? And then Ian McGilchrist, who we talked about last time, he, he said this. He, he put it this way. He said that we exist in simultaneous competition and cooperation. And I think that's true. All right, so there's also something there about... Uh, Raising the community, the larger community, to a higher level than the individual. You know, that's something that if you're steeped in American politics, <clears throat> you're going to understand is a problem. It's a problem with uh, our form of, of government, you know, natural rights, individual liberty. You know, if the, if the community as a whole is the greater object, if the community as a whole is the thing that's, that's abstracted more closely to, to God than the individual, if it's closer to perfection, then um, boy. You see what I mean? It's like the collective narrative starts to come in. And this is how you can see socialism and communism maybe connected to this Hegelian type of philosophy. Because if the if the greater community is important and the individual is less important, then we're going to do what's best for the many. Uh, and so that's, that leads really, really quickly into, into communism, into communist philosophy. So let's just step away from that for a minute. We're going to get back on track for just a second. Um, Hegel goes on like this. 
He says, Spirit finds in this way its realization. That's interesting. Spirit finds in this way. What does he mean by that? He's, he, he means existing in a, in a larger community. You know, um, having your identity extracted from this larger identity. So in that way, he said, spirit, by that he means consciousness, finds its realization. So it's like in being an individual and experiencing itself, um, it, you know, in individuality, in particularity. That, that that's, it's, it's on that individual level where consciousness finds its realization. So it's no longer abstracted, it's, it's something specific, it's unique, it's you and I, something like you and I. And then he goes on, he says, but spirit is at the same time the force of the whole, combining these parts again within the unity which negates them, keeping them aware that their life lies in the whole. Now I like that in the sense that in, in sort of the way I understand the relationship between God and man, that, that you know, material reality exists within God. I, I, I believe that. So when he said our individual, our individual lives exist in the whole, I mean, you can see that that's the case in the community that, where you live. But what, what I disagree with is you could remove the community and the person's still alive. The person still exists and has an identity as an individual. And that, I, that identity contains what Hegel already said, the universal in its entirety. One individual human being is God all by itself, and also God with everyone else. So the community, in my opinion, is, is not any more important than the individual. They're fractal re reflections of, of the same pattern that God is. You see it in the, in the, in the community, you see it in the individual. And, and we're going to get more of that here. So Hegel goes a little bit off the handle again, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call this next couple of quotes, here we go again. Hegel says this, In order not to get them rooted and settled in this isolation, and thus break up the whole into fragments, and let the common spirit evaporate, government has from time to time to shake them to the very center by war. By this means it confounds the order that has been established while the individuals are made to feel the power of their lord and master, death. By thus breaking up the form of fixed stability, spirit preserves the self of which it is conscious and raises that level, excuse me, raises that self to the level of freedom. And then this, this next one is short. The general power of government is the will, the self of the nation. Boy, that second one is even worse. The power of the government is the will of the nation. No. It's certainly not the will of the nation. It's, it, it, it may be the consensus will of the, of the majority in a democracy, but, but usually not. And it's certainly not in any other form of government. So, again, Hegel, come on, bud. But even worse, the other bit, he says, that the power of government is the self of the nation. Is the, it's the identity of the nation? No. The government is not. There is something, though. He, in the first quote, he says, he says something about letting the common spirit evaporate. You know, he, he, wants to, he wants to avoid that happening, right? He wants to keep, keep the government and the community together by preserving this common spirit. Okay, so there might be something like that, like a common spirit that's the identity of the nation, but it's certainly not the government or the power of the government. Hegel, come on, man. Okay. All right, now I'm going to call this next section back to it. So let's get back to it. Hegel says, The relationship of husband and wife is to begin with the primary and immediate form in which one consciousness recognizes itself in another and, which, and in which each finds reciprocal recognition. Okay, so I, I do think this is beautiful. Um, let me read it again. The relationship of husband and wife is to begin with the primary and immediate form in which one consciousness recognizes itself in another and in which each finds reciprocal recognition. Okay, so I don't disagree with that, um, but I don't think it's the primary and immediate form. 
that husband and wife, that that relationship is the primary and immediate form. I do think it's important, you know, when we're talking about self-consciousness, that that's what Hegel's talking about, that one consciousness recognizes itself in another. And so they're mutually recognizing each other. So imagine a time when you were in, in deep, deep, deep in puppy dog love, and you're staring into the eyes of the woman or man that you love, and you're lost in that moment, um, you're lost in each other's eyes, something poetic like that. And what's happening there is this sort of semi-miraculous thing. It's a powerful feeling. It's one of, of intensely recognizing one another and seeing yourself in that other person in some way. It's, it's identifying with them, becoming one, you know? That's what they say in the marriage ceremony or the beast with two backs, you know, becoming one in a sexual sort of way. Um, that's, that's a serious thing. But I would argue that that is not exclusive to a husband and wife. In fact, um, the, sto- the, the, the story that comes to my mind is, is actually just friendship, you know? Experience, having an experience of any human being, period, Good or bad, having an experience of any other human being is exactly that. It's recognizing yourself in another, and, and that it's reciprocal, you know? So, so I, I, I mean, the story of when I, Kyle and I met, you know, he was my f- first friend, basically. Um, this is what comes to my mind. It's like I, when I was five years old, I've, I've met a, a, a friend, as somebody who saw the world the way I did and was completely open to, to, to me and me being around and sharing, sharing, you know, his existence with me. And, uh, we were doing it together. You know, we were growing up together, we're exploring the world together, figuring out, figuring out who we were, you know, what it means to be alive, to be a person, you know, what, what are the possibilities? What are the dangers? We, we did all that together, you know, and, and it's like seeing myself just a little different, you know? It's like recognizing, and it's the, the, the recognition itself is such a good feeling. That's, what, that's the feeling we call friendship. It's, it, it's a type of love. And in my opinion, and this is sort of mystically informed, but my opinion is that love is, is exactly that. It's having your identity, it's expanding your identity to in, include another person or other people. It's becoming one with them, you know? So that... It, so I think that, that the truth here is that this is very beautiful and very true, but I think it's something that is true with interacting with any other human being. Consciousness confronting consciousness. And, and you recognize, even if you don't know it, maybe it's unconsciously, that what you're recognizing is yourself. I think the best example of that, the most powerful example of that, is a mother holding her newborn baby. You know, maybe maybe feeding or something, and you're just staring into each other's eyes, into the vast abyss of consciousness. That's what you're doing. And if you if anyone's ever done that with your own child, you know what I mean. Doing it with some other child is fine, and you you get the gist the gist of it. But doing it with your own child, it's like looking into your own potential. It's the it's a, it's a religious experience. So consciousness experiencing itself, that's what we're talking about. And I think that's two things. It's simultaneously two things. So being self-conscious, that, that's what we mean when we say consciousness experiencing itself. When that happens, that's simultaneously being. So I might describe that as an infinite and transforming set of individual experiences. It's all of the experiences that are happening right now. That's being. But it's also a mutual fulfillment of one another, of the individual and the universal, of consciousness and unconsciousness. It's a mutual fulfillment of one another. Ian McGilchrist said, if you remember from the last episode, that opposites give rise to and fulfill one another. Opposites give rise to and fulfill one another. So the individual and the universal, God and man, they, they create each other mutually and fulfill one another's existence. That's amazing. Beautiful and mystical and true. 
All right, moving on. So, so each individual manifestation or mode of consciousness. So these are the these are all the particular things, all the individual things that aren't the one. They're all of the individual things that make up the one. Let's say, according to Hegel, they are merely excuse they merely represent in a figure the life of spirit, and it and it is not spirit itself actually realized. This figurative representation, however, gets its realization in an other. So this is him describing how, how, how God and being, like, just like we just talked about a moment ago, fulfill each other. He says it gets its realization in the other. So God is realized in material reality, in the cosmos. So you can just think realized. You could use the word embodied. You could, make the, you could use the word manifest. You know, those are all sorts of words that come to mind. And Hegel goes on, he says, And by their attaining independent existence, solely through separation from the source, whence they came. So so he uses an example of a child becoming its own consciousness through its parents, but separate from them. And I think that's interesting. You get... You get oneness, you get manyness from oneness. You get difference from sameness, just like we talked about earlier. So he's talking about these individual particular things, all the manifold world, that, that they get their existence through separation from the source. That's consciousness with a capital C. Like we said, consciousness gets separated out to become all of the many things that exist. Separated into opposites forever. Just a endless process of separating into opposites and branching off into infinity and you can see that happen if you just think of biological evolution just think about life as, as an example just branching out every different way continuing forever becoming becoming different things from 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 something that it, that it what used to be once you know one type of bird becomes a hundred different types of birds over time and a bird becomes a whole different animal over time and it just continues. All right, Hegel says, human law as a living principle proceeds from the divine. So that reminds me of something we've said many, many times. Um, this, this, this thing that comes from ancient Greek philosophy, Hermes Trismegistus, as above, so below. So when he says the, hum- the human law as a living principle proceeds from the divine, right? The divine is above. The human is below, as above, so below. He says, the law holding on earth from that of the world beyond, right? The law of earth and the law of God. The conscious from the unconscious, he says. And this law also returns to where it came from. The power of the world beyond finds its realization upon earth. It comes through consciousness to have existence and efficacy, Okay, so imagine, imagine that you're God and there's, and there's no material existence. Imagine you're consciousness and there's no material existence. You're the potential for being and for action, but have, n- but have nothing to act on and nothing, and nothing to exist within. He's saying that that gets realized upon the earth in material reality, and it comes through consciousness so that God can have existence and efficacy. So consciousness creates the material world in which it exists so that it has a place to act, so that it has a place to be conscious. Amazing. Amazing. It becomes itself the place where it can be itself. That's what, it, that's what Hegel means when he says in itselfness. That's what Aristotle meant when he said self-created. That's amazing. All right, Hegel goes on. He says... The whole is a stable equilibrium of all the parts, and each part is a spirit in its native element. Okay, so remember, spirit's another word for consciousness. He's saying the whole, that's the universal, that's God. That it's in stable, stable equilibrium with material reality, its parts, all of us, all the other things that consciousness is. And each of those individual things, when you open up your eyes and look around, all the things you see, all of those individual things, he says that they're all spirit in its native element. They're all consciousness. In its native element. What is that? Consciousness. 
We, being is consciousness within consciousness. Amazing. All right. He says, the individual himself is the power of the world beyond. Oh, man. Let me read that again. The individual himself is the power of the world beyond. And the reality is his fury wreaking vengeance upon him. Man, that's a good one. Okay, so when he says the individual himself is the power of the world beyond, he's saying the individual is God, acting within itself. That's beautiful. He said that reality is his fury wreaking vengeance upon him. What does he mean by that? So there's this thing you guys are all familiar with. You may have heard the word existential angst. You know, think about a teenager. You know, everything's meaningless, you know, depression, search, searching for searching for meaning and substance and direction. And it's chaos. You know, existing is like that. There's there's nothing is ever good enough, right? You see that with technology. You see that with our lives. We're never happy. It doesn't matter how much money you have. We always want more. There's something about existence that's like that. It's anguish. It's something we call existential angst. We can't get rid of that. And that's something that Jordan Peterson said in a beautiful way one time. He said um, that, we, that that feeling that we have, existential angst that I'm describing, it's, it's a reflection of a truth, something that we recognize that we don't admit to, that our lives have cosmic significance. You know, It's the whole idea of good versus evil and our individual choices being the, the path down one road or the other, that there's a cosmic significance to our lives. So Hegel's putting it in a very interesting way. He's saying that, look, you as the individual, you're God. When you realize that, then you, then you understand where that existential angst comes from. He says, it's your fury. It's wreaking havoc upon you. The thing that makes you unhappy is that you have this potential at your very core that can become anything. And you want to become everything. That's the God part of you. And what have you become? And what are you doing? Not enough, not enough, not what you could be, not what you could do. That's the fury he's talking about. That's the existential angst, the, the anguish of existence. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay, he says, he says, its process is an untroubled transition from one of its powers to the other. So that's just part of the sentence, but I want to stop just to remind you when he's talking about self-consciousness, he says it's sort of like shifting perspectives from the observer to the observed. Being self-conscious is like that, moving from one perspective of consciousness to another. This is the process he's talking about when he says its process is an untroubled transition from one of its powers to the other, you know, from the master to the bondsman, from the, you know, from the master to the servant consciousness. And it goes on in such a way that each preserves and produces the other. So this, this back and forth between subject and object consciousness, that those preserve and produce one another, that they're co-created. They're like two, side, like two opposites of a whole. Can't have one without the other. It's amazing. And he says their opposition is the confirming and substantiation of one through the other. How do I know I exist? Because of that other consciousness that I am, who's turning around looking back at me and saying, yep, you exist. That's what self-consciousness is all about. Confirms and substantiates our own existence. It's like Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Something like that. And Hegel says, the one extreme universal spirit con conscious of itself becomes through the individuality of man linked together with its other extreme. So God becomes linked to man through existence, through, the through being, through material reality. So it's something like this. If you're consciousness within consciousness, if that's what you are, so consciousness number one is the place where you exist. It's the, it's the material cosmos. Consciousness number two is you sitting in that cosmos. And everything you, you experience is yourself. It's consciousness that, you, that you're in, that you are. This is what he's trying to, this is what he's trying to explain. He also says, Consciousness would have to establish its identity only through estranging itself, and yet at the same time have to produce that estrangement. 
And this is beautiful. This cuts right to the heart of something really important that I haven't been able to come up with the answer to yet, but I've been thinking a lot about. It's that if consciousness has to divide itself into opposites, you know, one, one side is God or one side is, is you, let's say. If it has to do that in order, in order to observe itself, in order to, in order to have this um, uh, consciousness of itself, in order to fulfill itself, right? It's, it's separating out, out itself so that it, it can exist and it can recognize its own existence. That what it's doing when it separates itself is it's, it's, it's estranging itself. This is why you and I think that we're a thing all by ourselves and that we're not a part of the universe, that we're not, that we're not one with the universe, that we're not God itself. The reason we think that we're not is because consciousness has divided and estranged itself itself from itself so that we have this perception that we're not one but we are and and this is what's even better he said that consciousness it does have to estrange itself it does have to do that so that it can so that it can it can experience itself let's say but but it has to produce the estrangement so not only does god have to exist but he has to he has to produce the conditions in which he can exist. So that should be mind-bendy for you right now, and maybe a little bit hard to grasp, but think about that. God has to God has to be has to be the place in which it exists. It also has to be the thing that exists in that place. And this process of estranging itself from itself gives you an ego. It gives you an I. It makes you think that you're a thing all all to yourself. All right, he goes on, he says, But the mind finds its contents over against itself in the form of a reality that is just as impenetrable as itself. And the world here gets the characteristic of being something external to self-consciousness. Yet this world is a spiritual reality. It is essentially the fusion of individuality with being. I mean, Amazing. So he said the mind finds itself even after it's estranged itself and it's able to look back at itself in this abstract way like like the like the material world. He says it finds that that is just as impenetrable as as what it was you know before. Pure consciousness, God. God is just as impenetrable as the world. What what do I what do I mean by that? Well think about it. The cosmos is infinite just like God and it's filled with unknowable things just like god it's a mystery just like god and and we can look to god and we can look to the cosmos and we're this again it's a fractal mirror it doesn't matter which which route you take it's equally impenetrable and he said this is how the world gets its gets this characteristic of being something external it's something outside of ourselves but he's like don't let that fool you the world is a spiritual reality and what does he mean by spirit? Consciousness. The world is a reality within consciousness. He says it's the fusion of individuality with being, you know, with individuality with the universal. God, the universal's God. All right, so he says, thus its existence is a work of self consciousness. But likewise, an act, an actual. Excuse me, let me start over. Thus, its existence is a work of self-consciousness, but likewise an actuality, immediately present and alien to it, which has a peculiar being of its own, and in which it does not know itself. This external reality is not merely this entity lying before the self. It is his work. So let me unpack that for you. Boy. So we, we, the first part's pretty self-explanatory. He says, its existence is the work of self-consciousness. What he means is that the material cosmos, reality, is the work of self-consciousness. Whatever self-consciousness is, whatever it does, it produces the world. And he says, he says that, he says, but likewise in actuality immediately present and alien to it, um, with a being all of its own, and in which it doesn't know itself. And this is just, just what I said. You find yourself a being within being, and and believe yourself to be separate from 
from the cosmos, and you're not. He says this external reality, it's not merely God showing itself to itself. He says it is God's work. It's what God is doing. This is something that I always say. I say we are the experience God is having. By we, I I mean being. I mean the material cosmos and everything happening in it. And this is, according to Hegel, this is something that's, that's, that's work. It's something that's being done by God. And he uses the word self-consciousness, rather. So it's something that's happening when consciousness experiences itself, that that becomes being. Amazing. Amazing. He says, such activity through which the substance becomes actual, right? The substance, that's God, consciousness, becomes actual. That's that's material. That's materially present in, in reality. Okay, so... When he says such activity, he's talking about self-consciousness. Consciousness, experiencing consciousness. So through that, consciousness becomes actual. He says that's, that's its relinquishment, and the relinquishment is the substance. The spiritual powers forming themselves into a coherent world. On the one side, actual self-consciousness, by its self-relinquishment, passes over into the real world, and the latter back again into the former. So what he's describing is a process of things flowing back and forth between God. You know, it's between the universal or or that thing I was calling non-being or the unconscious. Between that part of ourselves and, and the material world. The part that's materially real. Amazing. He says, The present has at once its opposite and its beyond, which consists in its thinking and its being thought. What is here in the present is its actuality alienated from itself. What is here in the present? Oh, man. So that's just, that's the here and now, right? That's being. What is here in the present is its actuality. That's God alienated from itself. So put differently, he's saying what's here and now is the actuality of God, but God doesn't know it, right? Alienated from itself. So you and I, Existing in this, in this moment are God without realizing that we're God. That's what, that's what the mystic intuition has said to humanity over and over and over again for thousands and thousands of years. And Hegel's telling us the same thing. He says the equilibrium of the whole rests on the alienation of its opposites. So this is super interesting. He's saying this idea that we don't recognize that we are God. That's actually necessary for reality to exist at all, for the equilibrium between the conscious and the unconscious, between being and non-being, for things to exist as they do, there needs to be this separation where we don't have that realization that we're God, that we, that we struggle with that. That's, that's why it's a matter of faith. That's why religion is a matter of faith. I think it boils down to exactly this. Struggling to understand yourself to be legitimately the creator of the cosmos. I mean, um, uh, existence itself. Okay. He says, The whole is, therefore, a self-estranged reality. It breaks up into two spheres. In one kingdom, self-consciousness is actually both the self and its object. And in another, we have the kingdom of pure consciousness, which has no actual present. Right? So people say God is timeless. And I think this is what, what comes to mind when he says the kingdom of pure consciousness. That's God. He says it has no actual present. Well, yes. But that actually has nothing to do with, with time. It, this goes back to the idea of non-being that I tried to explain earlier when I said when you put opposites together, you're, you don't have nothing. You kind of have everything. So he says it has no actual present. He means it doesn't exist in being. It exists outside of being. It exists in non-being, in the unconscious, in that place that you, that you know is real but you can't find. All right, so we're getting ready to wrap here. Um, the, last, the last bit I want to quote to you. It's something like Hegel telling us what we should be doing, you know, what we should be exploring now that we have this information. 
and it's it's going to sound to you very much like a mystic experience. It does. It's just what it, what it sounds like to me. And it goes like this. He says, both these kingdoms of self-alienated spirit will return to the self. These spiritual worlds will be dissolved in the light of pure insight. So he's saying it's possible for the individual and the universal to merge into it together, to merge into oneness. He's calling that he's calling that the light of pure insight. He says this insight being the self getting a hold of itself. So that's just like coming to realize what you what you what you are and what you've always been, but but realizing it for the first time. So getting a hold of yourself. He said it takes up everything as the self. It comprehends everything extinguishes all objectiveness and converts everything implicit into something explicit. That reminds me of what Jesus said in, in the Bible and the Gnostic, in the Gnostic Gospels as well, uh, that nothing will remain hidden, that everything will be revealed. They're saying everything implicit will become explicit. And then he says, this enlightenment also terminates self-estrangement. And this revolution brings about absolute freedom. So this this coming to understand yourself as God, this getting a hold of yourself and realizing what you have always been, that this is something like, like enlightenment. And it it corresponds with taking up everything as yourself, right? Because nothing nothing falls outside of you. You you know, you recognize everything is yourself. And he says that that enlightenment terminates the self-estrangement. So we talked about that earlier, where consciousness is object and consciousness is subject are divided, they're separated, they, they think of themselves as, as, as unique. That when that estrangement goes away, that's again the recognition of, of who you are, who you've always been. You, you, you have an identity at that time that is the same as God. He said that revolution brings about absolute freedom. That seems good, right? Hegel's saying that you should seek this. This returning to the self, right? This is a mystic experience. Is you know, an ego dissolving experience, fading back into the one, recognizing that you're God. That's a mystic experience. And he says that the payoff is absolute freedom. So we should be seeking after that. It reminds me of kind of the Buddhist tenet of nirvana. When you reach that absolute freedom, you're no longer tethered to the world or to the gods, that you're above even the gods, that that's what happened with Buddha. This is what that reminds me of, absolute freedom. So Hegel tells us that enlightenment is possible. In recognizing our consciousness as the fulfillment of consciousness itself, we come to know ourselves as God. We come to understand our actions to be the actions of God and our will, the will of God. And this removes the alienation, estrangement we feel, pulls back the veil, if you will, and brings about absolute freedom. But freedom from what? Freedom to do what? The mystics have said, as did Jesus Christ, that it is freedom from death. And fair enough, coming to recognize that you are God existing within yourself, as is all of reality, will certainly make you rethink the finality of death. But there must be more to it than this, more to it than mere immortality. What good is it to exist forever unless existence is used for something, towards some end? And what end, I wonder, might God accomplish? There are, of course, no limits. So what now? Go out and act in the world, for it's yours. Go out and be what you now know yourself to be. Act, but no longer as a mundane, frail, mortal being, but in your truth as architect and master of being. But take care. While we have the power to transform ourselves and the world, we also hold responsibility for what we turn them into. And this is the moral question, the religious question of good versus evil. We are the master of both and choose what gets to be. You are not a small, meaningless, finite, and ultimately replaceable creature, 
here for only a moment and then gone again into nothingness. You, like everything and everyone else, are a living embodiment of God, consciousness for its own sake. You are conscious so that God can know itself. You experience so that God can experience itself. You can act so that God can act. What say we act? Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>